So the question is, how can I withdraw, right? And so the way you can withdraw are that you have two options. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys. We have quite a bit to talk about today. We're going to cover the news, but slight, in a slightly different way. Um, you know, this is a fairly big week um, for, for Ethereum, and so we're going to spend the majority of the time today um, talking about the Shanghai Capella upgrade, kind of what it means for your, the network, what it means for users, and what we think some of the um, kind of near-term effects will be. Um, before we jump in, Parth, you want to you wanna just uh, talk a little bit about what you tried last week? Sure, you got it. So... Um so I think for my last week, I tried protocol. Uh, for the last one month, I've actually been thinking a lot about uh, marketing, especially more Web3 crypto native marketing and how one can incentivize people to use my Web3 product without obviously putting tons of money on uh, paid advertising. And so traditionally in Web2 companies, you see a lot of success through referral programs or affiliate programs where every referral that I do, um, I, I make some sort of... Uh, I make a small amount on the number of signups, right? And so recently I got this referral link from my friend to try out this DeFi protocol, but he kept insisting that I use only his link, right? And not type it in. And so that actually got me really curious because I obviously, uh, the first thing that comes to your mind is why is someone asking me to use a specific link, right? It could be a phishing attack, it could be something bad. And that's actually how I discovered sharemint.xyz. So ShareMint is basically, it's a product which makes it easy to refer people to your decentralized applications by embedding a referral code. And the magic is, as soon as you connect a wallet, uh, an on-chain event is triggered, which is tracked by ShareMint, and that tells you, hey, Jason referred Parth for this application. And after a few referrals, Jason gets automatically paid out by a smart contract without ever talking to ShareMint or or the founder of the application. So that's kind of the idea. So uh, it's slightly more crypto native form of marketing where just by embedding these two lines of code, I can incentivize people to use my decentralized application, which could be, which could be for uh, boosting liquidity or minting an NFT, but it's kind of a win-win situation because I don't have to build a referral system from scratch. I can rely on on-chain events uh, that which get triggered and then the payouts also happen automatically based on how I wish to customize it. That's kind of the idea. Well, what, what do you guys think? What's reactions? I mean, I think it's pretty cool, right? So it's like a referral bonus, but it's automated. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's pretty neat too. I, I guess the question would be is like, what, what are some uh, like the more immediate use cases for that outside of just getting someone to use your protocol, right? Because I think like, obviously that's very, powerful but I, I think the, the maybe the audio, the addressable audience is 
a bit small on that? That's that's a really good question because I think the way ShareMint works is that you can really customize how you wish to refer or the audience you want to reach out to. So suppose I build a Web3 product, right? And I want an audience of people who have at least one NFT or they have close to 10 transactions. So then I can do that. So I make uh, Ryan as one of my affiliates or one of my uh, influencers, so to speak. And then Ryan sends that link to Jack and Jason. And now what's going to happen is when they sign up, I can reward Ryan only if either one of them have had a few transactions in the past or they own an NFT or they have added liquidity in the past. So you can really customize who you are targeting. Uh, and uh, and that's kind of a win-win situation for for the person who's trying to get that liquidity, but at the same time for the influencer who's trying to um, uh, make something out of it. Uh, I, incidentally, I'd actually discovered this idea of referrals when Lido uh, was doing something similar two years ago. Right. So if someone so typically for the first few millions that were onboarded onto Lido, you had to receive a referral link from someone who was actively staking. Right. And and so that's how they got to their first few millions. And now obviously they're huge. They're close to $10 billion. But they built out this custom referral program in the past for themselves. And so think about ShareMint, which does exactly that, but it's more generalized for any Web3 product. It almost like brings an aspect of community to like marketing a project. And I can see that being useful for particularly like smaller projects that are trying to bootstrap themselves and build a community. Yeah. Well, I'm like, I think we've seen a lot of evidence of that, right? Like the economic incentive is like pretty critical for attracting people to the protocol. Um, Airdrops is another great, great example of how that kind of has unfolded over the last several years. So um, I think it is, it is a really interesting way of kind of um, attacking the the referral network. And I was just thinking about it in the same context of other types of social graphing, right? So you could actually end up with some type of graphing based on whom clips on the link that has been provided to them. So I, I think about LinkedIn, I think about Clubhouse, I think about these other types of networks that are uh, built up around the connectivity. So um, Although it's marketing, I think it could be more than marketing, right? Like to your point, uh, Jack, around building communities, I think that makes sense. All right. So I, we have a, quite a bit to talk about re-Ethereum. Um, but I think before before we get too far down the path of Shanghai and Capella and what it means, I think it might be helpful for the audience for us just to take a step back and, and talk a little bit about how we got here, right? I mean, it's been, it's been a pretty busy couple of years for the Ethereum network and kind of all of the upgrades that we've seen. And so, Parth, can you just kind of maybe set the historical context here of, of some of the, the big events that have, have led up to you know, the most recent event that we're going to see later this week. Yeah, of course. So so just to refresh our memory, uh, staking on Ethereum was enabled in December 2020 when the Beacon Chain was launched. And this is close to two years before the merge happened. Uh, we've covered the merge extensively. The merge was probably the biggest event in the history of Ethereum when Ethereum moved from proof of work to proof of stake, right? And so the idea of proof of stake is that you can stake or lock your capital to get rewards and also add to the network security, right? However, the life cycle of staking was missing this one final component, which is the unlocking of your rewards or the idea of getting your initial capital back. And uh, that's why you have the Shanghai upgrade uh, or as some people say, Chappella upgrade because it's Shanghai plus Capella. 
which enables you to move your rewards and capital back to your wallet. Uh, that's that's kind of the TLDR uh, or the context behind the Shanghai upgrade. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. So I, I think maybe can we talk a little bit more about what exactly being able to gain access to your rewards means in, in the context of um, staking to Ethereum or, or you know you know running your own node? Yeah, absolutely. So when you decide to stake to Ethereum, you're adding to network security. And so from a technical point of view, there are really two upgrades happening, right? So you have the Shanghai upgrade, which is happening on the execution layer, and you have the Capella upgrade, which is happening on the consensus layer. So technically, it's a two-step process where you are taking your staked asset out of the beacon chain or the consensus chain, and then you are getting that to the execution chain, which is your, your wallet. Uh, but that's that's kind of the background behind uh, what, what Shanghai is. So A, you stake your assets in order to get rewards, you add security, but at the same time, you want that optionality to exit out of the system, and uh, which wasn't enabled until uh, April 12th. Uh, that's, the, that's the current date that we're looking at. Yeah, and so I guess exiting really could mean a couple of things. So maybe can we talk a little bit about being able to, you know, exit out completely versus just, you know, gaining access to the rewards that have you've accumulated since the Beacon Chain launched, right? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And I think that's probably the most important question uh, on this upgrade. So the question is, how can I withdraw, right? And so the way you can withdraw are that you have two options. The first option is, which is automatic, is that validators do not have to do anything significant. And these are called partial withdrawals. So you can withdraw only the rewards that you have accumulated or you have earned from the issuance of ETH. So, so and that uh, those partial withdrawals uh, can be received every four days or every ninety six hours, and that's the first type. And so, and and that is any kind of balance on your validator that is in excess of thirty two ETH. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. Absolutely. And then the second type of withdrawal is a full withdrawal where you take your block rewards. So anything that is in excess of 32 ETH, anything that you've accumulated, along with the original capital of 32 ETH, which the network makes it hard for, for someone to do instantly. So, so if I'm doing a full withdrawal, uh, I have to use this mechanism of an exit queue, which could take up to from a few days to a few weeks. But those are the two different options of fully withdrawing as a staker. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that is helpful. And so I know, Jason, you were doing a little bit of due diligence before, before this um, on kind of what the state of um, kind of the node landscape is, right, um, in terms of number of um, validators currently active. Um, and, and the reason I ask is because I think that's kind of, you know, helpful foundation for kind of what we may see when this upgrade actually goes through. And then you'll now have this increased liquidity around those nodes. Um, do you want to just kind of give, give, give us some stats Sure. Um, so uh, as of now, there's about 564,000 active validators. So um, the network has grown quite a bit since uh, since the proof of stake was implemented. I, I did some homework to try and understand what would it look like if people decided that they wanted to withdraw as soon as they could, which is very unlikely. Uh, I, In part, please correct me if I go astray anywhere, but it looks like uh, there's a maximum of 16 withdrawals that can be included in any given block. 
which would translate uh, roughly to about 115,000 Ethereum that could be withdrawn in a given day. So that's a, that's a lot of Ethereum. I think uh, we were talking earlier of the total supply outstanding right now, only uh, between 15 and 16% of Ethereum is actually staked. Right now, it's about 18 million ETH that are staked. And that's roughly about $33 billion uh, in USD terms. And the average yield is about 4.4% APY right now. So you might question, why would someone with, with, withdraw anything in addition to the partial withdrawals? Uh, there may be decisions made to switch providers or, or to seek a better yield. But um, what I thought was also interesting is if active validators wanted to withdraw, all 32 ETH and move on, uh, only eight active validators uh, can exit per epoch. So it's about every six and a half minutes, give or take. So uh, there are gating mechanisms in place. But if again, just sort of hit the numbers, 564,000 ETH validators today, uh, maximum of 16 withdrawals in a given block and up to eight active validator withdrawals in a given epoch. So it would be a relatively slow um, exit if a majority were to try and exit within a given thing, because there's also staging uh, other activities. Parth, I know you know a little bit more about that. Um, what, what else are we missing here? So I think one um, interesting fact, which I think we should discuss, is the idea that when you have partial withdrawals, you don't really have to do anything, right? So if I'm staking, I just all I have to do is I have to provide my credentials that, hey, whatever money that I have made outside of 32 ETH based on my initial capital, just make sure that you transfer that every every four days. Now, the important information here is that there is close to a million ETH that validators have accumulated so far since December 2020. So most takers would ideally uh, want to test out if partial withdrawals really work, right? And so I think in my head, the biggest question post Shanghai is whether people collectively stake more because things work, which is generally a good sign, or do we see more withdrawals from existing validators than the new ETH that goes into the system? Uh, and I think that's kind of the question. That's what people really uh, want to know more. And I, I'm sure all of us have individual hypotheses, but uh, Jack, any any comments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good like jumping off point to start to talk about like, okay, this upgrade is coming Wednesday. What does that mean? in the short term and then what does that mean maybe like we could get into like bigger picture as well and i think in the short term one one side of the argument is like okay you're having unlocks here this is bearish because people that have had eth locked up since december of 2020 on the beacon chain when it initially launched might be unlocking and, and looking to sell their assets um i think that's maybe a little bit misguided just because if you think the market right now, over a third of, of ETH that is staked is staked with liquid staking token. And over a third have had basically the ability to sell those assets at near par value, right? And like, they, they, it might not be the actual underlying ETH itself, but it's the representative token of that ETH. And for the most part, those assets are all trading at nearly one to one. Uh, with ETH because of certain incentive mechanisms that have been able to kind of hold them at parity uh, until this uh, this upgrade that's coming. And so that means that, you know, roughly two thirds or, or so uh, are, are sort of the eligible supply of people that maybe would want to sell that haven't sold at the moment. But then if we look at 
uh, the realized price at the time that that ETH was staked, which is just to say, okay, uh, go back a month. If I staked a month ago, what was the price of ETH when I staked it? And then we look at the average price across all of those validators. It's above $2,000. I think it's around $2,100, $2,200 at the average price that that ETH was staked. And then also three quarters of the ETH that was staked is underwater. And so like, if you're actually looking at like, are people going to be profit taking? A lot of people that were staking their ETH, like you were only doing that if you're fundamentally like a long-term investor because you weren't, you didn't know when this upgrade was coming, right? It took years to get to the merge. And while like Parth, you would say, this is a lot technically less complex than the merge, but like still we had a wide time frame of like, maybe six months, maybe 12, maybe 18 months if, you know, if things happened the wrong way. But, you know, to, to the Ethereum developer community's credit, you know, it, it did take right around six months uh, to get to this event. But to think that somebody would have staked with the idea that, you know, six months later, they're trying to, to unstake quickly. I don't think that that's necessarily the narrative. So I think it's a little bit like indifferent in the short term. Um, and then we'll sort of see how it goes. But does anybody else have any thoughts in, in the sort of immediate you know, next quarter, let's say next month to next quarter? Yeah, I, I agree with Jack. I think one scenario, which is slightly more unlikely in my opinion, is that most validators would sell these accumulated rewards of 1 million ETH. But on the other hand, you have close to 67% stakers who bought ETH uh, at a price higher than what it is now, which is close to $1,800. Right. And so that's why it doesn't make sense for them to sort of realize uh, th th there are no like gains to be realized. And so there is a really small chance of them uh, of, of having a massive uh, um, uh, sell pressure. And also a lot of these takers, if they required liquidity, they already have options like Lido and Rocket Pool in liquid staking tokens. Um, so most, taker, most takers don't really have a ton of uh, gains to realize. While I generally agree with the positions that you guys have shared, I would propose that perhaps uh, tax implications may not be the first and foremost thought in people's minds when they're deciding whether or not to unbond a position from a validator or even sell some of their Ethereum positions. In fact, uh, not tax advice by any stretch, but I know people look at this type of asset and question whether or not the tax watch sale rule applies, and, and many believe it does not. So perhaps you could have people who are uh, realizing the loss in a position and putting the same exposure back on at a lower cost. So, uh, you know, it's just one more thing to consider. I think from, a, from a, just a pure perspective, you now have the ability to generate yield on the asset without worrying about being encumbered. And in some ways, I almost look at it like... Um, the HOV lane in the highway, right? So when you want to take the HOV lane, you're giving up optionality to exit in some cases. Now you basically have the freedom to move between the HOV and the traditional lanes in order to exit if you want to. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. I, I would expect that we'll see uh, additional value staked. But to carry your analogy further, Jason, there might be a little bit of traffic to get unstaked uh, at, the, at the beginning and, and from time to time. But <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, if, if you drive to Boston, we have the fourth worst traffic in the world, apparently. So uh, you get used to it. So you, you pick your spots and you move back and forth and we may see more of that. I would I would add something here that even though there's quite a bit of traffic to exit out of the system, but you will also see inflows into, into these traffic lanes, right? So you'll see more participation in staking. Um, in fact, Lido saw its biggest inflow two weeks ago. 
And uh, now that withdrawals are enabled or when they will be enabled, uh, even smaller players who have, let's say, close to five or six ETH, where they can say, oh, you know what, this thing works uh, and I, I know I can actually get my original capital back. Let me just try staking uh, through one of these DeFi protocols specific to staking. So Parth, a clarifying question on that. Um, there isn't any real direct relationship between, you know, the withdrawal queue and demand on the inbound side, right? Yeah, those are two separate uh, independent things. Yeah. But I think what I would say is that as you see the optionality of people actually getting the, the the choice to withdraw, that sort of incentivizes people to now participate in staking. Uh, and actually, one point which I also want to talk about is even institutions uh, coming in. Uh, so institutions staking also might eventually pick up uh, since you had this weird uncertainty before that you, you didn't know if you could get your capital back. Uh, and now that's going away. So now you would see products like like Alluvial or or the Liquid Collective, just targeting institutions to participate in staking. So I think that's something worth watching. Yeah, Parth, I agree completely. I was going to bring up this topic of delegated asset managers. If you're managing, like in particular, institutional capital on behalf of somebody else or someone's pool of capital, it's really hard to not only be able to just invest in this you know controversial asset class, but then to take it even a step further and say, not only are we going to invest in you know, this volatile asset of Ethereum, we're also going to lock it up for an you know, undetermined period of time where you're not going to be able to access this asset. Like that's almost you know, laughable. Um, but that bigger picture, as we start to like zoom out and, and talk about that, I think that 15% staking rate, it wouldn't be unreasonable to see that number double over the, you know, the year out, if we talk about April 2024, mid, middle of the year next year, to see us go from 15% stakes to you know, significantly larger percentage of these. So, so that's, really, that's a really good prediction. And I think, I think this might be putting the three of you on, on the spot, but what, any, do you have any other predictions uh, post Shanghai? So Jack gave a prediction saying, hey, so far you have 15% each staked it could possibly double by uh, 2024. Um, any any other fun predictions that you guys have? Mine will most definitely be more benign than that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think in the near term, you know, some of the you know, concerns around there being huge congestion to unstake assets, I think, you know, maybe a little bit overblown. And I think, Jack, you kind of alluded to this earlier. I think, you know, there we, we know there are, you know, certain active validator nodes that will need to unstake because of certain regulatory action we've seen certain products that are being wound down um, and that that you know that number could be you know somewhat significant but isn't going to be the mass exodus that I think many people thought might happen right like ethereum and kind of is the the last bow that kind of um, you know on the present um, of of the you know sequence of upgrades that we've seen over the last couple of years and so I think like largely ethereum, has been able to kind of execute on their on their roadmap um, and, and and deliver the value to to its users that you know they've kind of been going after um, and, and then I think the next the next kind of major step and, and I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on this is you know now you start to see like you know the scalability foundation has been put in, into place now what does the actual adoption look like right how many active users I think they they want a billion right roughly they they're, they're aiming for a billion users um, and so. If they can get there, then you know. It, again, zooming out, Ethereum looks is, is looking like it's in a pretty good position, and so as as you know, stakers are being a fundamental part of that network. 
it makes a lot of sense that, yeah, you would see, you know, a very significant increase in the amount of, of you know, staked ETH on the network. Absolutely. And there's no number associated with that. <laughs> and that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough to do numbers, but I think my, my prediction is slightly more granular. And I think one thing which we haven't really discussed is the whole idea of the incentive mechanism that you have for staking within Ethereum, right? So the in incentive mechanism is also is dynamic. So when you see a lot of validators remove their ETH, the block rewards or your net APR for staked ETH goes up. Uh, and then the other way around is when you have a lot of new validators come in, the net APR goes down. So more ETH staked is obviously higher security to the network. It reduces risk of attacks, but at the same time you have lower yields or lower rewards. And so you might see a small bump in APR in a lot of these staking protocols uh, once Shanghai is enabled, because a lot of people would actually like to test out if the withdrawals work. Maybe 30% or 40% of that ETH might actually be, be sold on the markets. Uh, and But I think in the long term, you'll have more staking activity on Ethereum as a whole. And so you, you would maybe see the staking yields uh, go down as more folks decide to to participate in staking. I I think that all of your suggestions make sense. I I don't really want to make a prediction, but part of that I agree it's probably going to be that bump as people try it out. Right? Um, you don't buy a car without driving it. You know, if you're going to put some significant uh, value for for yourself into a protocol, you want to make sure that it, it it's working well. I'm sort of looking at it from a different angle. And I, I know I, I mentioned this to you guys before we got on this call. I'm really curious to see what it does from the Ethereum uh, supply perspective and thinking about, um, will we see an increase in transactions leading to some increase in burn? Um, over the last seven and 30 days, it looks like uh, there's actually been um, a disinflation where the amount of burned ETH exceeds the new supply issuance over that period. So um, I don't know whether or not that will, that will persist, but I do think about it. If people are willing to move to get to the staking withdrawal exercise, if they are willing to pay a higher transaction fee, you know, will a greater percentage of that transaction fee end up getting burned so that we'll see some, um, some impact, I'll call it, on the, on the actual total supply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking about more transactions happening on staking, I think we should also maybe talk about the liquid staking protocols that are out there. Uh, so you have Lido and you have Rocket Pool. And uh, obviously, once Shanghai Upgrade goes out, you have Lido's version 2 coming out, which is mostly going to be enabling withdrawals. That's kind of the whole point of, of having Shanghai Upgrade. But at the same time, they're also adding a lot of more features. And so you have Lido V2, which is, uh, so A, obviously once you have withdrawals, they will not have to spend as many resources on maintaining the peg between Steeth and ETH, right? But it also is trying to add more flexibility just in the terms of, just in terms of the types of validator nodes you have, right? So Lido historically has had, I think close to 27 or 28 uh, node operators, which are carefully curated and vetted by the Lido DAO members. But I think now they are trying to decentralize the, the type of operators that you can have where each of these uh, operators can have different security assumptions. So you can have one set of node operators within Lido that are 
carefully curated and vetted by the Lido DAO members, but you can also have a few people who are who are staking experts, but they are just staking it at home, right? So you so as a Lido user, you can have that option once version two comes out. Uh, and and Lido obviously is still pretty dominant in the staking race. It's got close to seventy percent of uh, all the ETH staked. In in part, they were working on coming up with different ways to decentralize or add additional clients into their protocol, right? That's correct. Yes. So so their roadmap to decentralized operators is to really have these levels of operators. So you have level one, which is these hardcore operators, industry standards, huge infrastructure. And then you have level two, which would probably be people who are staking experts, but they still home stake or, or people who are not, who do not have access to uh, a superior infrastructure. And so as a Lido user, I can choose where I want to put my, my ETH. To summarize that, just to make sure that I understand. So what you're saying is these kind of LSTs, right, have created a kind of a whole new level of utility outside of liquidity, which is what they were initially kind of intended to address, right? And so because of that, you may, you, you may still see users pushed towards, you know, Lido or Rocket Pool because they don't necessarily want to, you know, A, operate their own node or they don't have the, you know, the, the, the funds to do so. Um, or they want to be able to use those um, LSTs for, for something else in DeFi, right? Absolutely. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. That's interesting. That'll be, that'll certainly be something um Interesting to watch, you know, once we get past the upgrade to see kind of if they're able to maintain that that level of, of market dominance, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely look at the, the shakeup in liquid staking tokens going forward and whether or not Lido keeps that market share. Because to me, yeah, I would find it a little bit concerning if Lido continues at its current pace, because I kind of think that liquid staking tokens are going to get larger as a as a share overall because you know think about the centralized exchanges like for instance Kraken we know that their US investors are going to be you know unstaked and withdrawn and that's 7% of supply total at Kraken I would I would guess that most of that's US based um, and so where is that all going to flow towards centralized entities or towards you know these these DAOs and uh, liquid staking tokens I would think it's staking tokens but the concern is like how big can one entity get where there's no limit on you know that that centralization and the network effects that Steve has built at some point, right? You take it to its logical extreme of you know, what if Lido was two-thirds of all staked ETH, right? The the LDO token effectively becomes like the governance token of Ethereum, right? I don't know that it ever gets there, right? At some point, people start probably having less of a monetary incentive and more of a, some incentive of like keeping the network secure and decentralized. But I do think that that'll be an important thing to watch going forward. It's like, where are these assets flowing? All right. Well, thanks. This was this was a great discussion. Uh, this time next week, we'll be on the other side of this. And, you know, hopefully we'll have some some commentary on kind of what the first uh, several days uh, look like from from a withdrawal standpoint and kind of some of the other uh, network behavior that we're seeing. But, um, you know, thank you guys for, for this discussion. Again, extremely valuable. And for everyone for joining, thanks so much for, for tuning in. And we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good rest of your week. 
Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademark appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.